Well, uh, bad company corrupts good character, right? Bad, bad company correct, corrupts good character. So if you uh, are wanting to be a righteous person, you should know that if you spend time around those who have poor character, you may become corrupted like them. This is something that uh, we're told all the time. It, it's as if, uh, you know, you've put on your clothes because you've got going to a wedding, but then on the way to the wedding, the car gets a flat tire, and you find yourself in your nice dress clothes having to change the tire. And what's going to happen? You're going to get your clothes all dirty as you're out there in the rain. If you're walking through a field of mud in your nice clothes, you're going to get them all. You, you've done such a good job to shower and clean and put on the nice clothes that you don't really want to be in a place where you're walking through a dirty field or in a place where you might get yourself soiled, right? And that's where this idea comes from. Bad company corrupts good character. But this morning, we want to bring a caution to the caution. We want to bring a caution to the caution. Let's take it in the way that Jesus takes it. And here's how Jesus takes it. Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Now, this is amazing to me. We have the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew was written by the disciple of Jesus named Matthew. And here we are. We are all the way to chapter 9 before Matthew introduces himself. And he doesn't even introduce himself in a very extravagant way. It's just sort of a, you know how those other disciples were called, you know, the fishermen? how uh, Jesus came along and said, come and follow me, and they dropped everything and followed, that, followed him, I was the same way. I was the same way. Jesus did the same thing with me. Jesus came walking along and said, hey, come follow me. And I got up from my tax booth, and I left the stuff there, and I went and I followed Jesus. Because I'm one of Jesus' disciples too. I'm one of those who was called by Jesus. Matthew has been recording things that up to this point, he'd talked with the other disciples. I mean, it's not, like, it's not like he didn't know who Jesus was. Jesus was in the area teaching and preaching and things, and, and Matthew would have known who he was, and then he would have been talking with all the disciples. They would have caught him up quickly on all the things that he had missed so that he could go back and record it later. This is the whole story. But, G, but Matthew here is introduced, and he's introduced not really for the sake of Matthew himself, but what comes next, right? As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And so Matthew rose up and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house... That's just a weird transition right there. Follow me. Matthew gets up. They're walking along. Scene cut. And then they're in the house. Whose house? I'm guessing it's Matthew's house. That we have been introduced to this whole concept of him being in the house by giving us Matthew's calling. 
but I have no idea. You know how you're watching a movie and then there's a scene cut and you don't know, like it takes you a second to figure out, wait, okay, wait, where are we now? What time is it? How much time has passed between when the screen went blank and when the, the new image came on the screen? This is the, the same kind of thing. I, I don't know how much time passed. I'm guessing that Jesus didn't walk by the, ta- by the tax booth in the house reclining at the table and say, come follow me, and then, G- then Matthew left the tax booth to come sit next to Jesus in the house. Like, I, I don't think it was th- quite that tight, but relatively quickly, relatively quickly, maybe later that day, maybe later that week, shortly thereafter, I don't know. Matthew doesn't bother to tell us. What he wants to link for us is that he is a tax collector who was called by Jesus to become one of his disciples just like the fishermen were. And just like the fishermen were called and told, you were gonna, I'm going to turn you into fishers of men, then Matthew is called and said, okay, come and follow me, and he drops everything, and this tax collector is now a disciple of Jesus. Tax collectors are not people's favorite people. The IRS doesn't have the best reputation. I feel bad for IRS workers. Somebody has to do the job of collecting taxes, but no one likes them because no one wants to have their taxes collected. And beyond that, the tax collectors at this time had a bad reputation, not only for collecting taxes that were due, but because they were collecting taxes for the Roman government. This government that they didn't really want to pay taxes to. A government that they didn't agree with. A government that they didn't want over them. Get out of here. We don't want you here. And now these tax collectors are collecting taxes from us to give to this Roman government. And on top of that, as if that wasn't bad enough that these traitor tax collectors are collecting money from us so that they can give it to a government that we don't want, and on top of that, these tax collectors would often line their own pockets by collecting just a little bit more than was actually required for the tax, thereby making themselves wealthy. And so tax collectors were not particularly well-liked by anyone. And it is striking that Jesus, while walking along, sees Matthew sitting at the tax booth and says, Hey, come follow me. Enough with the tax collecting. You're done with that. Come follow me instead. I'm going to make you a collector of men instead of a collector of taxes. And so the very next thing, Matthew is wanting to set up this next scenario by saying, look, Jesus came, he called me, I was a tax collector, and he called me to be his follower, and this is what happened because of that. So because he had called me, then he's sitting at the table in the house having dinner, and, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold... Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, 
Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. That's kind of weird. Like, many of them? Like a, like a party of tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus is there, sitting with them, welcoming them? Do you remember who Jesus is? That Jesus has been teaching. He's been teaching uh, Matthew uh, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He's this great teacher that everybody, wow, he teaches with such great authority. Jesus has been healing people. Jesus has calmed the wind and the waves. Jesus has driven out the demons. He forgave the sins of the paralytic and then healed the paralytic and caused him to walk. Jesus is the man. Right? Jesus is the man. He's like crowds flock to come and see Jesus. And you would expect that this kind of a teacher, this kind of a rabbi, this kind of a miracle worker, he would just be like standing off by himself. Like some kind of elitist kind of person that, that you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't be able to approach him. But Jesus isn't elitist. He is approachable. Like, like you can just sit and grab a beer with Jesus. You could be sitting there at the table with Jesus. These tax collectors and, and sinners are there at the table with him and his disciples. And the Pharisees saw this. I don't know how they saw it. I don't know if they heard that Jesus was in the neighborhood and so they popped in to say hi. I don't know if this was an open door policy, but certainly there was enough going on, right? Many tax collectors and sinners were there. Lots of people were there. So there's lots of activity going on and Pharisees coming by, wait, wait, what's, what's going on over here? It's not a huge community. If there's a, a commotion, there's going to be notice of that commotion. And these Pharisees come over and take a look and say, what's going on? Oh, Jesus is, is uh, having a party. Jesus is having a party? Yeah. Yeah, he called Matthew, the, that Matthew Levi, the tax collector, he, he called him to be one of his followers. He did what? I thought he was, I thought he was respectable. I thought he was like a rabbi or something. He called a tax collector to be his disciple? Yeah, and now all, those, these, uh, all the friends of Matthew, all these tax collectors and all those sinners, they're all at this party with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, verse 11, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? There's a tone of accusation there. It's not mere curiosity. They're asking this question because they have a problem with it. Right? When, when they ask the question, 
why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I then stop and go, okay, why would it be a problem for Jesus to eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why would it be a problem for the Pharisees that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why would it be a problem for the Pharisees to eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good character. The the Pharisees have, have been very careful to put on their clean clothes, to wash themselves ceremoniously, Do not defile themselves by hanging out with these people that are really of questionable character. We can't be associated with that. And so when they see Jesus associating with them, when they see him reclining at table and the others who are reclining at table with him, eating and drinking with Jesus, when they see that, they're going, hold up, you're going to get some of that sinner on you. You can't wear those clothes and walk through a muddy field of sinners and expect to come out clean on the other side. You're getting all gross just by hanging out with them. What are you doing? And so they question his disciples. And they question them like this, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. Your teacher, the one that you are a disciple of, you are, have come to learn from him. So you tell me, why is it that your teacher is doing this? Is this the kind of teacher that you want? The kind of teacher that hangs out with those people? But when he heard it, that is when Jesus heard it, verse 12, He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Who needs a physician, Jesus is asking. Is it those who are well or those who are sick? Who goes to see a doctor? Is it those who are well or those who are sick? Why then would you ask, how come that doctor is always hanging out with sick people? What is that doctor thinking? Do you know what's going to happen to his reputation? If he's hanging out with sick people, they're going to start thinking that he himself must be sick because all he does is hang out with sick people. They are going to start thinking that all those sick people are sick because of him. Look at all of them are hanging out with the doctor. They must have gotten sick because of he, he's a doctor. He will certainly become sick himself if he's hanging out with them. Why is that doctor hanging out with all of those sick people? And Jesus is saying, you would never ask that question. You would never ask the question, why is a doctor hanging out with those who are sick? Because those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick, they need a physician. They need a physician. Jesus is hanging out with them. We have just heard he healed the paralytic. 
And when he healed the paralytic, when he caused this man who was unable to walk to be able to walk, he said, this is so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. This is so that you will know that I have the authority to forgive sins. Get up and walk. Jesus going, I have the ability to forgive sins. I'm the sin doctor. So I'm going to hang out with those who need me. Those who are well, they don't, they don't need a doctor. Those who are sick, they're the ones that need a doctor. I'm going to hang out with those who are sick, and I'm going to hang out with only people who are sick. Jesus says, this is the reason that I came. This is the reason. This is my purpose for coming. He's the forgiver of sins. What is your purpose? What is your reason for being? What are you trying to accomplish today? What are you trying to accomplish this week? This month? This lifetime? What are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to make it so that it's easier? More comfortable? More fun? More enjoyable? Less painful? That life will be better, and so each day I work so that at the end of the day, life will be better, or I work so that at the end of the week, I can have some time off so that life will be better, so that I can really enjoy it. So that this year, I'll be able to take that vacation and do the things that I really want to do. Or maybe your uh, purpose is, I, I really want to accomplish something. I, I really want to benefit people. And so I want to do something with my life that benefits other people. Or I want to do something that is noteworthy. I want to accomplish something with my life that people will go, wow, that's amazing. Or maybe like the Pharisees, you're wanting to live a life of righteousness. Live your life in such a way that you don't have to be embarrassed about it or ashamed of it. That you are living your life in, in a way that is pleasing to God so that God will accept you. You're trying to uh, live in this righteous way so that there is no more sin in your life. Well, Jesus gives us direction on what our purpose should be. In verse 13, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Isn't it interesting? They came to him. They actually, they didn't even come to him. They came to his disciples and said, your teacher is doing this. Why does your teacher do this? And he says, uh, you need to learn something. You need a teacher. You need to learn something. Here's what you should go and learn. Learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire compassion toward those who are sinful more than I require religious uh, performance. I desire mer mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's, what he's doing here is he's making an allusion back to the book of Hosea. Because here they're coming along and they're saying, how come the teacher is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? He should be hanging out with righteous people. Why is he hanging out with them instead? And he's going, I'm sorry, I came to help the sinful not the, the righteous. Do you remember Hosea? Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Do you remember Hosea? We read the first part of Hosea chapter 6 at the beginning of this service, but I'm going to read that for you again, and then I'm going to continue on until I reach what he's quoting in verse, chapter six, in verse 6 of Hosea 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall you do? What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. He's saying, look, you guys, your love was so short. It's like the morning fog that the sun comes out and it's gone. But like the dew on the grass that the sun comes out and warms it up and it's gone. Verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The book of Hosea is all about the sinfulness of the people all about how they had turned away from the Lord their God and were not following Him any longer. How they needed to repent and return to Him. How He is merciful and compassionate toward His people when they do. That they were at times offering sacrifices and things that were not acceptable to the Lord because it was just all for show. There was no heart attitude before, uh, with it. They had read the prescribed um, rituals and sacrifices and things in, in the 
books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and they had, had read those things, and they went, okay, well, this is what we do. This is how we know we're righteous, because we're doing all the right things, so we're righteous. And he's going, no. From the beginning, it was to remind you of your sinfulness. The sacrifices were to remind you of how sinful you were. And then the prophet Hosea is saying, I am here to remind you that the Lord does not accept these religious sacrifices and and things from you because there is no heart behind it. There is no love there. You don't love the Lord your God along with your sacrifices. You are completely self-serving so that you will present yourself as righteous. It's all religious form with no substance. You are, in fact, not righteous, but sinners in need of repentance. And so when Jesus is quoting this from Hosea chapter 6, he's going, guys, I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for the show. I came because sinners need to repent and they need forgiveness and I have the authority to forgive sins. And if you thought that you were righteous and did not need a Savior, let me remind you of Hosea. You do need a Savior. You do need someone to forgive your sins. You do need righteousness that you don't currently have because if you think that you are an elite, you are actually not. You are a sinner too. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. How about you? Are you like a Pharisee standoffish? Not wanting to mix it up with those dirty sinners? Do you isolate yourself? Try and make it so that you only have to hang out with Christians? I only hang out with Christian friends. I only go to Christian businesses. I only send my kids to Christian schools. I only do things with Christians. Now, I want to highlight the word only there. It is important to have strong Christian community, to connect with other Christians that will support and encourage one another. That is vitally important. It is replete throughout the scriptures that this is important. But if we find ourselves in a place where we only go to Christian businesses, only hang out with Christians, we will begin to think that we are among the righteous, unlike those dirty sinners. 
And it is unlike Jesus to live that way. Jesus came with the purpose of connecting with, engaging with, spending time with sinners because he knew how much they needed him. And we are counted among them. If you find that you don't know non-Christians, if you find that you don't know sinners, that if you don't find that you don't really have those kinds of friends, I would encourage you, find ways to get connected. Find ways to make friends that are unlike you. I find that the more isolated I get from people that I consider the sinful ones, the more judgmental I become and the less I connect and think I understand them. And the more that I engage with people who think other than I do, people who have not yet given their lives over to the Lord, I start realizing, wow, they are a lot like me, actually. We are not so different. I just know where my salvation comes from and where my righteousness really comes from. Jesus, there's a, a turn here. It's an interesting turn that Matthew has linked these two stories. This, this story about Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees coming and asking the question, why is he eating with them? And then we get this next question. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, how come we, uh, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Is he still sitting at the same party? Is he getting these questions at the same party? I don't know. That'd be really weird though, wouldn't it? The Pharisees come going, how come he's eating with them? And then the disciples of John are going, how come he's eating at all? Why is he eating and having a party? How come we fast and the Pharisees fast, but Jesus, how come your disciples don't fast? What's the deal with you eating with these tax collectors and sinners instead of fasting? Shouldn't we all be fasting? Isn't that the religious thing to do? Isn't that the righteous thing to do? Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Why, why do people fast? A lot of times they're, they're mourning something. They're, they're mourning uh, some kind of loss. Maybe um, someone dies and, and you're mourning to lose that because you've lost that relationship. Maybe there's a brokenness in relationship and you you're just can't eat because you've lost that relationship. Maybe there's some sort of sin in your life and you're mourning because of the sin that's in your life that's separating you from God. There's a brokenness, a loss of relationship there. But what if there isn't a loss? What if there isn't a brokenness of relationship? 
What if God's relationship with you, God's right there? Jesus is going, how, how could they fast? I'm right here. I'm right here. Would you fast at a wedding? During a time of celebration? During a time of, of great joy? This is the time when we all celebrate together. The, the food is there and we, we all eat together and we're all happy and we're all rejoicing. That's not the time for the weeping and the crying. and the... It, it doesn't fit the context. Can you imagine somebody showing up to a wedding with sackcloth and ashes and they're, oh, what are you doing? I'm just mourning. Why are you mourning? Because I'm so sad. And the, the, what are you doing here? Are you here to celebrate the wedding? No. No, I am here to just, I don't know why you would do that. I can't, I can't even invent a reason why someone would come to a wedding while they are mourning and fasting. Like, I, I can't even invent one because it doesn't fit. And Jesus is saying, look, it's, I'm the bridegroom. It's celebration time. Here I am. There will be time later for fasting. They'll fast later when I'm no longer with them. But for now, here I am. We're eating together. We're celebrating together. There is a time and place for fasting. There's fasting to lament the brokenness in the world, the things that are going on, the sin that we see around us. There is time for fasting for repentance of our own sin or fasting for the sake of discipline and keeping our mind focused on God or fasting in, in a way that helps us to remember our dependence upon God. There are times and places in which fasting is appropriate, but while Jesus is right there with us, while we are celebrating, that's not the right time. That's not the right time for fasting. That's the time for partying, for celebrating. And I, I think about that, and I think, wow, yeah. As Christians who have Jesus with us, we should be like the best celebrators we should throw great parties. We should have great celebrations. Because why do other people party? Why do other people celebrate? They invent reasons. They invent reasons to celebrate so that they can overindulge in something and pretend like this is happiness. It's my birthday. Let's all celebrate. Yeah! How should we celebrate? By overindulging in everything. We won the game. That's great. We should celebrate. How should we celebrate? By overindulging in everything. It's Christmas. That's great. We should celebrate. What should we do? We should overindulge in everything. Thanksgiving, overindulge in everything. Fourth of July, overindulge in everything. Cinco de Mayo, what does that mean? We don't know. Let's overindulge in everything. 
Mardi Gras. What is this? We don't know. Well, it's the day before Ash Tuesday. The what? No, let's just have Mardi Gras. We'll overindulge in everything. We'll celebrate. Why? We manufacture reasons so that we can overindulge in things, so that we can call it a celebration. And then we just carry it over from day to day to day. Because the way that we know that we are happy is we are overindulging in things. And then we start living for that purpose. That we might be happy in the kind of people that overindulge. But that's not how it is for Christians. That's not how it is for Christians. We actually celebrate. We celebrate because we have joy. That Jesus is with us, that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins, that Jesus has the authority to forgive our sin and make us righteous, to restore our relationship with Him. It is like it is the day before the wedding where we are getting ready to be united with God. And we are celebrating for the sheer joy of that reunion. We don't have to overindulge. We don't have to overindulge because we are celebrating with true joy. Would you enter into our joy with us? We're going to have fun. We're going to have uh, rich foods and we're going to have things, but we don't have to overindulge in those things to make it a celebration because we are celebrating with true joy. Would you enter into our joy with us? We have a God who came to eat and drink with sinners because they are the ones who need him. This is so counter to what they had expected that Jesus gives two quick little parables to demonstrate how he's blowing their minds. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, because if it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are prepared. Jesus is going, your religious form, your ceremonial righteousness doesn't fit with me. I've come to demonstrate and to show you what true righteousness is, and it is this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire compassion, not religious form. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 58, he said, Is this not the fast that I choose? This is verse 6 of Isaiah 58. Is, this, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself, not hide yourself from your own flesh. He says, look, I, this is what I want. This is the kind of fasting that I'm looking for. 
that you would do good to those who are in need. That you would have mercy and compassion on them. And I go, you know, Jesus, can I just fast instead? How about I just skip a meal? Call it good. I, I don't really want to mix it up with dirty sinners. I don't really want to mix it up with poor people. I don't really want to mix it up with homeless people. I just kind of want to hang out in my comfortable place. And Jesus is going, what are you doing? Are you a Pharisee? Come and follow me. Might be uncomfortable sometimes. Might be a lot of fun sometimes. Might be both at the same time. But we have to get out of a place of comfort and into a place where, like Jesus, we are connected with those who need him where we can celebrate with true joy and invite them to enter into our kind of celebration. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, it says, What do I gain? If, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. Now, I started off this morning with the caution that bad company ruins good morals, or in other translations, corrupts good character. That's biblical. But what's the context of this? What is he saying? He's talking about how there are those who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And for those who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, then we, must, we ought to just take on the philosophy that they have. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's overindulge in everything and pretend that we're happy because tomorrow we're going to die and there's no resurrection from the dead. He says, now be careful. Be careful. Bad company ruins good morals. Bad company corrupts good character. Be careful. Don't adopt their way of thinking. Do not enter into that kind of partying. Well, let's just overindulge. Pretend like we're happy. 
for tomorrow we die. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't do that. It is true, if you hang out with people who have that as a philosophy, you will need to be on your guard that you don't adopt that philosophy. We don't want to party in the way that sinners and tax collectors party. But we do want to party with tax collectors and sinners. so that they might know the hope that we have. We don't want to party like those who have no hope. We want to party with those who have no hope so that they might have the hope that we have. Or in the way that we talk about it here at, Life, here at New Life Church, we want to engage those who are disconnected from God so that they might delight in Him through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, may we not think that we are righteous in and of ourselves and too good to hang out with those who are unrighteous. May we remember day after day that our righteousness comes only from Jesus and we are only righteous because of him. Lord, would you teach us what it means to live with mercy and compassion? Would you help us to uh, move into uncomfortable places with people that we might be less comfortable with? That we might help them to see the reason that we have to celebrate, the hope that we have in forgiveness of sin through Jesus. Lord, as we do that, we pray that you would keep us from adopting a mindset that eats and drinks for tomorrow we die with no hope of a resurrection. But as we cling to our hope of the resurrection, that we might eat and drink with those who have no hope, that we might give them the hope that we have in you. Lord, we know that it will not be easy It is backwards and upside down from what we often expect. But we also know that you have called us for this purpose, have redeemed us and forgiven our sins so that we might be in right relationship with you, but have left us here rather than take us home to be with you so that we might share that hope with others. And so we ask, Lord, make us bold to proclaim that hope. And would you make 
those around us receptive. That they too may have their sins forgiven by Jesus. And we ask for this in his name. Amen.